Hey, Bob and Joyce listeners, Bob Stapleton here. Today, Joyce and I are joined by a good friend and trusted colleague, John Vegas. And John is going to share his thoughts about the role of HR OD in an organization's success. And John is certainly more than qualified to do this because he's worked in many roles in both HROD, he's worked in a number of diverse industries, and ultimately led several high-impact HROD functions. What stands out to me is John's passion for unleashing the potential of individuals and organizations, which, oh, by the way, he also thinks is the primary role of an HROD function. For those that are getting started in HROD, he gives some good practical advice on how to launch your career. John also shares his innovative, bold work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, both as a business leader and more recently in the education space. John will give his perspective on how to approach big change and shifting a culture, which he certainly has done throughout his career. Let's talk a little bit about John's uh, recent activities. John is the founder and principal of Vegas Consulting Group. Uh, That's a coaching and leadership consulting practice. He also leads a Vistage CEO advisory board in the San Antonio area. And looking back, he has had a number of head HR positions at a number of companies, Unify, G&K Services, Echolab, Uh, And where Joyce and I know John best is from our time at both Hannaford and Food Lion, where John served last as the director of OD uh, for Food Lion. John has a master's in OD from American University, uh, and he also is someone that is very involved in the community, serves on a number of nonprofit boards, which is no surprise given the person that John is. So let's get started. Here's our good friend and trusted colleague, our conversation with John Vegas. Hey, Bob. Hey, Joyce. And hey, John. Well, we've Hello. got a guest. <laughs> we have a guest and we're happy. Um, so... John, we want to jump in and get all that we can from you for our listeners because you know HR world really well, you know OD world really well, and you know independent consulting really well. And so I'd love to sort of hear the good and bad of each of those. So let's, where would you like to start with HR or OD? I will start with HR just because I started there um, from a career professional standpoint. Um, first, I want to say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful I've had just terrific mentors and coaches and both of you that, you know, helped me both uh, establish the foundation, both from a structural standpoint on what, I, what one needs to do to be successful, but also giving me the, the architecture, right, the psychology and the practice to be able to do it. Um, so to answer your question directly, I, in my view, when I talk to students and HR professionals, one of the things is that HR tends to be more formal and more structured, right? And I think when you when you talk about HR to different leaders, including CEOs of organizations, you get very different perspectives as to what HR does and how they provide value to the organization. Um, and, and so in some ways, it's a lot about uh, policies and procedures. For some, it's about talent acquisition. For others, it's primarily around comp. Uh, but in my view, what I think the value that HR brings is that holistically, we're able to kind of end-to-end think about the life cycle of an employee. Um, and good HR organizations and good HR leaders are able to, uh, even though they have a technical capability in one aspect of HR, are able to leverage that across the entire spectrum. And I think that, to me, is what um, 
defines, I think, really good HR. OD I, in my yeah, go I, ahead. I'm gonna, yeah, we're jumping on HR for a little bit. Sure. Um, shroom <laughs> or HR is having a day, right? It seems like there's much more HR pride and that it is beginning to take its <laughs> seat at the table. Um, given your your work in HR in the companies you've been in, would you call it in the middle, progressive, or still learning? I would say it's varied. Each organization was at a different stage. If you think about it from, you know, I would say HR is a true business partner, being strategic, thoughtful, at the table, partnering with the businesses on strategy and how to best execute it, to the other extreme, which is largely tactical, hire people for Mm -hmm. us, Uh, you know, we need to make a, you know, we want to make a compensation adjustment, what should we do and right and so you're implementing something as opposed to thinking about it holistically. You know, I would say that each organization has been at a different stage. Um, I think what I would argue is that um, at Ecolab, as an example, and at Hannaford, which I thought were two organizations that were at the leading edge, um, we both had a seat at the table, but we also were able to really influence the business strategy. Right to ask questions to talk about it. If we really want to be a global company, as an example, like how do we go about doing it? How do we find good people? How do we structure compensation? What is our employee value proposition? Both how do we define it, and then how does the business take ownership for that? So it's not just HR leaders doing HR work. Okay. It's really the organization embracing uh, a more comprehensive human capital people strategy. Um, and I would argue similarly that there. Well, the, the, the other part I was just going to highlight is yeah. I think there are organizations that are also doing really good HR work, but the difference is that um, it's, it tends to be more vertical. So it's the HR practitioners trying to do HR work, protecting employees, protecting the organization. It's a more defensive-minded, more tactical approach. And to me, that's kind of the two you know, stark differences as you think about how different organizations think about the role of HR. And so, if you think so, about go ahead. I was going to say, I've got a question. I'm sitting here like I'm uh, not in the conversation. I'm like watching a show and I'm leaving really impressed, John, with just how articulate and your knowledge, and your wisdom around HR. A lot of our listeners, many of our listeners are kind of new to the game. Uh, so I have a question. And that is, what would you tell someone who's new or just cutting their teeth in HR uh, based on what you know now and the journey you've taken? That's a great question. You know, I, I would say one, it largely depends on what your own capabilities are. So for example, when I started in HR, uh, and I was actually thankful to work for you as an HR specialist in Virginia Beach, Bob, I don't know if you remember this, oh, very uh, well. but I, yeah, I was very passionate about people and I knew enough about uh, the psychology and the practice of people, right? On how to lead and motivate teams. I didn't have any of the policies or procedures. Um, and that two-day seminar that I went to, literally around understanding law and compliance, was really important in giving me an important technical foundation. Um, but beyond that, it's largely around, so what skill sets do you currently have? Uh, what might you be missing in your toolbox? Right? What is your organization value? And, and then how you go about either getting and acquiring those skills and abilities. Um, but to answer the question more specifically for people who might be like wanting to start in the world of HR, I would argue there are many functional capabilities that HR leaders have. And so the question largely then becomes, do you want to be in the talent acquisition side of things, which is really around you know, recruiting and hiring and onboarding? Would you want to be an HR generalist or practitioner where you tend to more sit um, 
by, by, by the side of business leaders and helping advise them and guide them and kind of um, share really valuable insights about you know, just human capital in, in totality. Are you fascinated by compensation whereby you, know, you want to be able to design and develop compensation plans and figure out how do you pay people appropriately to motivate them and excite them? So depending upon where you want to practice and play, I would encourage you to go out and network, do your homework, uh, and then try to figure out how can you acquire those skill sets that are really important so that you can both understand how to do your job well, but also understand how you can bring additional value to that particular leader or business. Have you been in a situation where the organization is really um, resistant to HR? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I laugh largely because if you're doing your job well, the organization should provide some level of resistance, meaning you know, at least for me, I think as a leader, whether it's an HR leader or an OD leader, you're often trying to challenge and push the organization to become even more progressive, more forward thinking, uh, to be leading the way as, as an organization, as opposed to trying to follow others. Uh, but having said that, I, I think the biggest one for me was at Food Lion. When, um, so, you know, I would think about when we were at Del Hayes, uh, you know, parent company acquires Hannaford, I'm in the Southeast. Uh, and I was offered the opportunity to go be the director of organizational development at Foodline. And the two companies could not um, have been more different from a culture standpoint. I think we all certainly wanted to achieve the same things, wanted to win, wanted to take care of our customers, but had very different points of view around the development of our employees or associates. Um, and, you know, frankly, almost everything I said to leaders at Foodline initially seemed, seemed to be controversial, right? Uh, the way you think about labor, the way you think about talent, I mean, uh, it wasn't uncommon for retailers in the you know late 90s that you talked about labor, they would say we run seven and a half percent labor in our stores. And so what does that mean? That equates to X number of hours and that's what we hire to and that's how we staff our stores, uh, which tends to look at people as a commodity as opposed to an asset. Now, it's not that they didn't just care about people. It's just that they tend to think about it from a financial standpoint as opposed to a psychological human capital standpoint. Um, and so just trying to challenge leaders to think differently about that um, was, was, you know, would blow your mind. Uh, so on the one hand, it was challenging for me as, as I was trying to, as a 31-year-old, you know, forward-thinking person who wants to change the world, talking to highly established, highly successful leaders, heads of industry, who have been entrenched in doing things the way they were doing them for 25 years, um, you can imagine what some of those conversations were like. Were like. But I would say that it also proved to be some of the more rewarding experiences and some of the better relationships I was able to build as well. Yeah. You just said something at the end there about building relationships. As you were talking about those difficult conversations, I'm thinking about just what credibility that you you had based on who you are and how you showed up. So it's no surprise that you're able to make the kind of positive changes that you did. And with yeah. that skill, and with that talent, you still hear him saying, yeah, it wasn't that easy. It takes perseverance, doesn't it? And, and to find that right edge of where to push the resistance and then where to accept it and say, I'm going to be exactly where you are. We're going to start where you are, company. But we could be over here a little bit. And how, where, how the degree to which, it's like physics, the degree to which you want to push the resistance or state it or recognize it and the degree which you, you want to accept people right where they are which softens the system. So heading when you head into OD, were you talking about uh, 
pushing or that resistance more from an OD role than an HR? For sure. I think, yeah. um, so un unlike many of my peers and colleagues, some, many of them who are RMTs as well, retail management trainees from your previous podcast, um, you know, many of them decided to pursue MBAs or wanted to stay on the formal track from a business standpoint. I decided through, thankfully, both of your guidance, but Joyce specifically to pursue my master's in organizational development. And it largely came from a passion and affinity that I developed for the early work that OD practitioners are doing in the 60s and 70s around, you know, just social justice, you know, human capital, positive psychology. But I would say that one of the benefits was I learned very early on that your job as an OD practitioner is to, is to promote change, right? I mean, we're constantly changing and evolving, whether it's individually, collectively within organizations or society. Uh, and so having, having the desire, one, to be a positive change agent, but two, to be able to push in a constructive way. And for me, what's always been helpful is like, I look at the algorithm of what are we trying to do? What does the organization want to go? What's that particular leader trying to accomplish? And then try to find ways to be able to get there. Uh, you know and it often goes through people. So just trying to figure out what's the best way to do that is, is the way I tended to look at it. I'm going to jump in here with a big piece yeah. of work that you and I initiated and did together that I think shows how big the OD impact can be. And that was Food Lion had had an incident um, broadcast on television about betraying health standards in one store, given the pressure on the store manager. And we had now in, in people, if you talk about this, go, oh, that's so psychological. The organization had shame. It had been shame. And they had ingested that embarrassment and that shame. And I think you and I took that head on using the search conference. Do you remember that? And, I do. And, yeah. And so I really want to recommend that tool. But, and we didn't come in and say, oh, you hurt, you were hit hard and now you need to have pride. We opened up all the wounds very gently. And it was one of the largest pieces of work, I think, that you and I did together because it ended up in the reconstruction, uh, 350 people meetings and um, talking about it. So we took it from the top team to the 150 all the way through the organization. So, um, yeah, that one merits a good twenty. Good work. It was great work, but I think to provide context for the audience, right? Mm -hmm. I think what what made it so powerful was so imagine, you know, Food Lion between nineteen seventy and nineteen ninety four was like one of the fastest growing retailers in the country. They had one of the fastest growing stocks in the New York stock market. Uh, they had more millionaires per capita than any small city in America, and then these episodes run on ABC primetime. And all of a sudden, these executives who were seen as demigods and highly successful people and leaders in their community go to being embarrassed and shamed because people in their community are saying, like, how could you do that? Like, how could you, you know, treat the seafood or how could you have these food safety standards in our stores? And to your and point, one tiny, one tiny misjudgment by one person in one store. Well, and, and, but to your point, how pervasive, right, that became and both hurting their brand. So overnight, you know, sales plummet, people start feeling embarrassed, employees start leaving. But the hardest part, to your point around the shame, and you talk about, you know, what OD practitioners can do to be able to drive change was having executives and leaders actually talk about it, right? And, and if you think about it, most highly successful executives 
have this external armor where they don't necessarily share a lot externally and don't become very vulnerable, but they were suffering and struggling and uh, were extremely frustrated. And so to both be able to say, look, let's go back and talk about points of pride and um, what made the organization so great? What did you do, right? How did you contribute to the success we're of the high, business? We're really high impact. What were the high points of pride and all that? So I'm thinking how important sure. it is as a tool to structure a conversation properly. I agree. So well, how about- Have an honest conversation, building trust, right? Helping people focus on what's important. I mean, not to bring in my executive coaching practice, right? But one of the biggest learnings I've had has been that you can have highly successful people who are just plowing forward on a daily basis, kind of unconsciously, right, doing their things. And so they may step back to make a decision about the business, but aren't being reflective about what kind of impact they're having. Are they living a life they want to live? Are they doing the types of things that are important to them? So to your point, facilitating those conversations, and in that case, at the group level or at a systems level for leaders within that organization to be able to kind of regain their pride. And to be able to kind of refocus uh, and move forward with a different mindset was really powerful and important. Yeah. Well, Brad, I'm just going to do one, why not just say one thing on that? It was the individual conversations with everybody that was going to be in that room ahead of time right. that made the search conference work. So plowing the field matters, Bob. <laughs> well, let me just finish that to Bob's point. The yeah. reason I think that's important is because, frankly, most leaders wouldn't didn't want to go to the search conference. I mean, look, as I've done OD. Uh, whether conferences or large-scale meetings with leaders in organizations, whether that be Ecolab, Food Lion, Hannaford, you know, Unify. At the end of the day, executives often tend to think like, what's the purpose of that meeting? What are we going to accomplish? How do we wire it tightly? How do we get people the information they get they need so they can consume it and let's move forward? OD meetings tend to be far more around how do we engage people in our dialogue? How do we do some reflective work? How do we work together to talk about our vision, our forward thinking, what our core values are. So to your point, you have to do a lot of these individual conversations because when you show the design up front to a lot of the senior leaders, often CEOs, they're reluctant to say, yeah, we're going to go spend two days talking about you know X, Y, Z, and W. Uh, and so the individual conversations both, I think, help cement what's the purpose of what you're trying to do. Number two, get people bought into what you're trying to accomplish and be willing to be vulnerable and honest. And number three, I think, to be able to leverage the collective strengths. And today, that may not seem as radical, but 15, 20 years ago, you know, organizations didn't necessarily think about retention uh, in the way that, you know, we thought about it then and the way we're talking about it now. You know, just listening uh, about your experience and, and coming out of the real issues around the primetime live Look at where Food Line is today. So you think about the intervention, the very specific and intentional things that you both did with, with other HROD partners and leaders. And now the organization is, I think they're in their 40th consecutive quarter of positive store growth. I suspect that isn't where they'd be today without that intervention that just kind of shifted that inflection point. I think it was the opener. Well, I want to brag a little bit for Meg and the team and everybody who works. So I, I think there's a number of things. One is that, um, look, there's tremendously talented people in every organization, and there were really talented people at Foodline. I think at the time, they were a bit lost and frustrated, like every organization does when you have a setback. Uh, and this was a pretty big one. What I think was really impressive to me is that um, how do you help highly confident, capable, successful people to want to work together? And they want to work on the right things. And they did some really heavy lifting and some impressive work. And I mean, 
at the time you asked earlier around, um, or you mentioned earlier around, you know, setbacks, it was a three, four, five year process. I mean, this didn't happen overnight, but you started creating cells and teams and the merchant team started to embrace the change. And then retail apps started embracing the change. And uh, to your point, Bob, it, it, it's turned into a phenomenal success story, but um, a lot of really talented people. And I think the role we get to play as OD practitioners is how do we create the right environment for the right conversation and then for leaders to be able to get the answers that they need? Uh, that to me is the, the power and the beauty of the work. <laughs> that we're, we're, both, we're both on our end applauding. <laughs> we're clapping. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's got to be fun doing it too. So Yes, that's right. And laugh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> fun and fairness. Yay. Um, what about equity and justice and uh, DNI work today? What's your thought? That is a really big question. I was hoping we we're going to yeah. talk about that in the context of my background. Um, in the context of today, I would say, I mean, the world is so heavily politicized. Um, and I think people are just anchoring themselves on both extremes of the polarity. And so I'm, I'm disappointed that we're not further along in the conversation. Um, in my view, you know, I, I'm just really passionate around how do we help, you know, in particular, I mean, young adults and students, but also in society, how can we engage in more meaningful conversations so that, you know, I can respect and hear your point of view and you can respect and listen to mine. Uh, and that hopefully through that dialogue, we're able to build um, a better place and to be able to support each other differently. And so I'm a bit disappointed and frustrated by it, but I think there's a lot of really also, having said that, I think there's a lot of really exciting work that's happening as well. And I think in the in the world of education, and I'm, I'm working on a startup myself that I can speak to later, but I'm also encouraged by the fact that, you know, young adults and millennials and people in society are, are willing to ask really difficult questions and are willing to say, I want to live in a better and different world. And whether that's DEI work or whether that's um, ESG or whether that's, you know, um, you know, just overall how we engage and interact with one another, I'm, I'm also encouraged by the fact that I think people are doing some really cool cutting edge work as well. So tell us about your work with education. Yeah, um, it comes from um, work that we did in the corporate setting, right? So if you think about a lot of organizations, and we did some of this in the, in the mid-90s with doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work, we actually called it diversity at the time. But it was largely around how do we get leaders in the organization to embrace diversity, whether that's you know race, gender, sexual orientation. Um, but how do we attract talent that reflects diversity in the communities that we serve? Uh, and that was the business case. And, and through that work, we did some, we engaged in some really controversial, challenging conversations. Uh, but through that also came some incredible gifts and learnings that I think helped both Hannaford and then Foodline and certainly Equalab, which is now, you know, frankly, one of the leading edge organizations as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, to get recognized for doing that work. But there's both the business case, there's, you know, whether you believe in the moral case or not, that's, that depends on who you're speaking to. Um, but there's also just the humanistic case of like, look, at the end of the day, and we see this today more than ever, organizations are struggling to find exceptional talent. Um, and the best way to do that is to promote an organization and environment that embraces and respects people, uh, and especially people who are different. And through that, you get more creative ideas, more innovative solutions are able to deliver better results. So taking those that those principles, um, and then if you were, and kind of, I've done some research, and so here's the research that I've done that I'm really encouraged by. Um, there's a significant need in the education arena for both parents, teachers, administrators, and students as it relates to 
diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice. And what I mean by that is 70% of parents, as an example, believe that their kids, um, that kids who understand their identity and when spoken to about their identity tend to perform better in schools, are more confident, show up differently, uh, and have just a higher self-esteem, right? So we know this to be true. Parents and teachers know this, yet less than 10% of parents or teachers or schools talk to children about identity. And so whether that's, you know, you're an African-American kid uh, in New York City, or you're a Latino kid in San Antonio, Texas, or you're a white girl who grows up on a farm in Iowa. At the end of the day, right, we all have an identity. And the question largely is, do we understand who we are? Do we understand our story? Do we understand where we come from? And how can we leverage that as a source of pride to be able to help all children, uh, to be able to show up in a way that projects confidence, in a way that they can engage with others, that they can be curious and that they can be uh, more effective and successful on their journeys. So that's kind of the premise behind it. Uh, so there's research that says schools want this work. Teachers want to be supported in this way. Parents believe that it's needed, um, but yet, you know, it's not being, um, it's not being addressed in a constructive way. I mean, there are charter schools and there are some offerings, but I would argue that they tend to be vertical. So they tend to address maybe one element of diversity. So whether that's whether that's an all-girls school from a gender standpoint, or whether that's schools that are trying to address specifically in the African-American community or the Latinx community, but no one is looking at this holistically across the, across the education arena. I'm thinking about uh, a colleague. Uh, did you know, um, well, first of all, yay for that work. <laughs> yay for that work. Um, I did do a search conference in, with Scarborough School System, but our, yeah, and it was awful. The teachers were just going, great, this is so much fun. We love this day off. Let's do more. Um, what was I going to say? Bob, help me. <laughs> oh, do schools have an OD or change agent person? They do not. What's, what's amazing is I've tried to do more and more research, and we've looked at this. Um, one, schools are stratified in different models, right? So you have a public school system, you have a private school system, you have charter schools within that system, um, and they all tend to have different models and approach it differently because the funding uh, that is provided is different. Some comes with strings attached, some does not. Uh, you know, many schools and many leaders, these heads of schools, public or private school, believe that this is an area of need. The question becomes, what is the curriculum? How do you design it? How do you engage people in a constructive way? And then ultimately, who pays for it? Many school districts are finding uh, creative ways to pay for it. Many for-profit corporations are paying for diversity, equity, inclusion, training, and work within the schools. Because frankly, if you think about it, they're ultimately attracting talent coming out of high school who are then going into college into their workforces. So they see this as a need. But no, there's not a specific OD person. Um, and there's not a consistent way of approaching this problem from a societal standpoint. So, John, oh, if I'm a teacher listening to today, or if I'm a parent that says, boy, I want to get that in my school, how can they uh, reach out to you to get more information about this? Well, they certainly reach out to me directly. I'm happy to talk to them and guide them uh, as to you know, how to one, get resources and to how to be thinking about it. You know, from our startup standpoint, we're trying to figure out what's the best way to solve this problem. And so the debate has been, do we focus on parents? Do we focus on teachers? Do we focus on children? What we've decided is we want to focus on all three. Uh, and then specifically, we want to focus on children ages you know, 12 to 14, 15 years old, because that's the critical stage of their development where they start thinking about their own identity. And frankly, many kids start experiencing you know, shame, 
right? It is because, you know, I've been shamed or harassed, or I don't necessarily see my race or um, my religion as a source of pride. And so what we want to be able to do is provide them with the tools and resources to be able to help these students um, be able to do that and for them to be able to feel good about who they are. But again, more importantly, I think the compelling societal benefit would be we want to, we believe you should have kinder, more compassionate, more engaged uh, members of our communities. So as opposed to you know, us combating and fighting each other every step of the way, if we can just learn to be more, uh, more supportive and helpful to one another, then we believe that we can ultimately help these individual students, but also be able to change society. John, we've got about five more minutes. So uh, you've covered a lot and this has been great. Is there anything that you would like to, to delve into or share in the time that remains? No, I mean, so far it's been good. I mean, I'm happy to uh, keep answering questions. You know, you, you were kind enough to give me some, some seeds of things to think about. You know, one of the things, I guess maybe I would say one thing um, as it relates to kind of HR, OD, or, you know, people who are from a career standpoint. Um, part of my own journey, it's, it's been very unconventional. I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, I grew up um, in a very humble town and in, in, on the West Coast of Puerto Rico. And, um, you know, I was a decent athlete and a good student, one of getting a great education. But, you know, I, I think for me, one of the things that's helped me is I've had tremendous mentors and leaders that have, you know, helped guide me and influence me. And both of you have certainly done that for me. I remember when you actually interviewed me for the RMT program in college. I think I shared this story with you. Uh, you only asked me a handful of questions, but, and at the time I wasn't quite sure what the intent of those questions were. But as I think back, you know, to that experience, it was phenomenal and, uh, and certainly very helpful for me. Uh, and then you provided us a great foundation for me early in my career. And then, you know, Joyce guided me as I decided to transition uh, and take the unconventional move of moving from the business to HR to OD. Um, but I think, you know, being able to have people that you can trust in your network that will be open and honest with you, will challenge you and give you advice uh, is something that everybody should have. So for those listeners out there who are trying to look for ways to advance their career, whether it's in HR, OD, in business, wherever else, you know, m- my advice would be find individuals who genuinely care about you, who you can trust, um, and then lean into them for, for advice, guidance, and support. I think it will prove to be incredibly valuable. And there have been many others as well throughout my career that have helped me, but um, I certainly would not have had the opportunities or the experiences or made some of the crazy moves uh, professionally that I've made if I didn't have you know, a great group of counselors, uh, a great group of advisors. Well, I I hope you take this as a, a compliment. But when I look at both of you, Joyce and and John, uh, you are scroungers. And what I mean by that is, both of you, when you, in your stories and what you shared, not only did you have people there for you, but you also sought out. And if you needed to learn something, or if you needed to find out, or to gain a new skill. Uh, both of you are uh, John and and Joyce. You were both great at uh, you know knocking on the door and asking questions. So it was as much your uh, influence as it was people that happened to be there. Nice. I'm not sure that was a comp- scrounger on it. You know, all on its own. I wasn't quite sure where you were going with that, but thank you. That was very nice. <laughs> much appreciated. <laughs> I am a scrounger. <laughs> I am Joyce, and I'm a scrounger. <laughs> so Joyce, final thoughts. This has been great. Mm. So satisfying to see the arc of the work of the three of us taken further by John and also uh, my passion for the field 
has gotten larger, which is why I'm back seeing clients because it's needed now. It's desperately needed now. We need to know how to change without destroying and change we've got to do. So that's my last statement. Go and grow. Go and grow. Well, John, thank, uh, thank you for uh, being with us today. This has been great. Uh, hopefully it went well enough on your end that you might come back sometime in the future. I would love to. It's always fun to be with you both in whatever <laughs> platform that takes place. So Joyce and I usually do the sign-off. Uh, John, would you do the sign-off uh, for our listeners? Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been a great pleasure to be with you, and uh, you take care. Thank you for joining us on the Bob and Joyce podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and picked up an idea or two to go forward and do great work. For more information, please visit us at bobandjoyce.com. If you like today's podcast, please click subscribe. And even better, give us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. It supports us and helps others to find the show. If you'd like more ODHR content, please follow us on Facebook by searching for Bob and Joyce Podcast. Until the next time, be well and be safe.